0: Hey, and welcome to the Scotts Hill podcast. We are in a series on the book of Revelation where we are seeking what God's word says to us as the church right now. Each week of the series, we will go through large portions of scripture. So if you go to scottshill.org revelation, you will be provided a reader's guide to keep you on track with the passages from each week's sermon. We hope this series blesses you as we look forward to the imminent return of Christ. Well, good morning. Welcome to Scotts Hill. So glad all of you are here. If you're a first-time guest, my name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as a senior pastor here. Glad that you're able to join us today. Those of you who are watching us online... Thank you for inviting us into your home. Let me give a shout out to Aaron Noser. He's one of our state troopers in the state of North Carolina. He's going to be working today, but sometime during a break, he gets the opportunity to watch this and keep up with it. So Aaron, thank you for your service. And I want to say thank you to all of those who work in the hospitals, who are nurses, who are doctors. Yes, who take care of our community. And they have seen so much in these last months and years, and we just need to thank them for putting themselves on the line every day as they're helping us walk through these times in this pandemic. It's been a really challenging time for us, but I'm so grateful for God's favor in our lives and as our life in the a, in a life of a church as He's brought us back together, and yet His hand of favor has been upon us, and we're continuing to pray that God would continue to keep us safe in the midst of these days. Well, I'm going to put two words on the screen for you this morning. These two words are oxymorons. They don't seem like they go together. They don't seem like they would fit. You would probably not usually use these two words side by side. But like I said, they're an oxymoron. They're kind of like jumbo shrimp. That's an oxymoron, you know. (laughs) Genuine imitation leather. That's an oxymoron honest politician that's an oxymoron and so what we're not going to use some other illustrations but some people might be offended um but i'm not going to i'm not going to go there i'm going to i'm going to protect myself today but the oxymoron that i'm thinking of are the words a terrifying joy a terrifying joy you would think those don't really go together terrifying and something that's joyful How do those two things fit together? But when you think about our lives, most of our lives are kind of lived in that tension, isn't it? There are terrifying moments and there are joyful moments. And then there are situations in our lives where the two come together. Let me give you a few illustrations. A roller coaster ride. It can be terrifying at first, but then very joyful at the end of that. How about skydiving? Anybody here ever go skydiving? and yet you purposefully jumped out of a good plane? (laughs) Yeah, that could be a terrifying joy, especially when you realize the guy you were supposed to be tandem to didn't jump with you. (laughs) So there's a terrifying joy. You think of that. You can think of other things like um, driving in Hampstead at 5 (laughs) o'clock. That's a terrifying joy. Me being on this stage in front of you, week after week, can be a terrifying joy. The birth of your first child, a painfully terrifying joy, right? How about being persecuted with the strong possibility that you would die for the sake of Christ? That's both terrifying and both joyful. How about the day that as believers, we stand face-to-face, eye-to-eye with the glorified son of God it could be both terrifying and it's both joyful we've been studying the book of Revelation and last week we kicked this study off by looking at verses 1 through 8 but today we're gonna continue and we're gonna pick up verses 9 through 20 and when the Apostle John is writing this at the instruction of the Lord Jesus himself we see all through this passage this theme this tension of a terrifying joy and we can see where the Apostle Paul John is absolutely terrified in some cases, and he's overfilled with joy. And all through these verses, from verses 9 to 20, we see this tension. And there's this mutual tension among all believers as we live in this, this line between terror and joy. And it's all through our life. And in verses 9 through 20... What John teaches us is that there are seven mutual things that you and I live in where there can be this sense of terror and this sense of joy. But in the midst of it, these mutual things are held together by the reality that we have a risen Savior who walks with us and who is actively working in our lives and in the life of the church. And this is an encouraging message that he gives to the body of Christ. It's an encouraging message that he gives to individual believers. That as we go through this life, we don't have to live just in the terror and the difficult things and the fears. But the result of those things ultimately bring incredible joy. This is where we've been so far in the book of Revelation. In verses 1 through 8, we saw six things about this book. It's a revealing book. It is open before us. It's a relevant book. It's for today as it was written 2,000 years ago. It's a divinely recorded book. It was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to, by the Apostle John. It's a rewarding book. We are told that if we read this book out loud, that there are blessings It is a received book. It was given to the churches for us. And we receive it as they did, and it is a reassuring book. It is a book that's going to reassure us in the most difficult of times. And we ended up by saying that the theme of the book is threefold. The book of Revelation, we can't ever forget this. If we ever read the book of Revelation and we don't think of these three things, we miss the whole purpose of the book. It is to lead us to worship Jesus more intimately. It is to enable us to walk courageously in this broken world, and it is to remind us that we are to work faithfully until He comes. That is what we're called to do. And this theme finds its way constantly through the book of Revelation. So it should drive us to worship. It should drive us to walk with incredible courage and to work with all of our might until He comes. But now this morning, let's take up this terrifying joy, beginning in verse 9. So if you have your scriptures, if you have your devices, if you have um, your phones, whatever it is that you have, look at Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Now we've got a lot to cover this morning, but we're going to do it in a very practical way that you're going to see when we finish this book, this, page, this chapter, what John is speaking to us about. Here's how he begins. to Pergamum and to Thyatira, to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Father, for Your Holy Spirit who gives us wisdom and insight. And Father, as we break these passages down, use them to change us for Your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we just read this long passage, and in this passage, there are seven mutual blessings that John is talking to us about that we have in Christ Remember, he's talking to a church that's been incredibly persecuted. He's talking to people who are facing death every single day. And he is writing words of assurance and encouragement to them. So he gives them these seven mutual things. And in the middle of these, he gives us this, this vision that he has of the Lord Jesus. And we're going to unpack these and see practically what they mean for us. So let me give you these seven mutual blessings that you and I have that flow from the risen Christ at work in the life of the church. Here's the first thing. We share a mutual partnership in suffering. The Apostle John wants us to know that in the body of Christ, there is a mutual partnership as we suffer together for the cause of Christ. He puts it this way. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now, he calls himself a partner with them in the tribulation. He's not talking about the great tribulation that is to come. He's not talking about the tribulation that Daniel speaks about. He's just talking about the ongoing tribulation that happens because we're children of God. And there is a certain persecution that would come with that. Now, remember what I said last week. All of these believers had known nothing other than being persecuted their whole life. For 30 years, there was a systematic persecution against the church. And they were hated and they were despised for a lot of reasons. They were despised politically because they would not support the emperor and give their allegiance to him. Their allegiance was to the king of kings, the Lord Jesus. So they were despised Um, Politically, they were despised. Religiously, they would not bow to Caesar and worship him. Therefore, they were considered atheists and would be criminals of Rome. They were not only despised politically and religiously, but they were despised socially. They were considered the lower class of Rome. They were the bottom rung of society. But lastly, they were despised economically. How is that? You see, in Rome. All these people made their living off of idol worship. The craftsmen, the priests, the merchants, they sold all of these goods. And yet the Christians would never buy into any of those products and began to hurt the economy. And because they would not support it economically, they were despised. And so what was happening is they were being Crucified. They were being burned alive at garden parties. They were being stoned to death. They were being tied in animal skins and released in the wild to be devoured by wild animals. They were sown in two. When you go and look at the history of the church and see the incredible suffering that they went through, the Apostle John says, I'm a partner with you in that. Why? Because they all knew that to follow Christ meant that there would be persecution. I want you to think about what Jesus taught his disciples. He says that in this world, you will have what? Trouble. You will have trouble. He says, you will be persecuted. Jesus says, if they've hated me, they're going to hate you. The early church knew that. And they were partners together, understanding at any moment, any of them could suffer and die for the cause of Christ. Now, here's an interesting thing. We're living in a culture today where we know nothing of that. And particularly in the Western world, we know very little of suffering. We have no theology of suffering in the church today. We have no doctrine of understanding of suffering. And yet the early church only knew that. And we're living in a culture today that if somebody says something to us, we think that's Persecution. We live in a culture today where we want to scream about our civil liberties and our religious liberties. And if somebody does anything against us, oh, we're offended by all of that. And the early church knew nothing of those things. The early church knew there was a possibility of suffering. I think of the apostle Paul when he's in prison. He's singing and giving thanks and praise to God that he was worthy of being punished for the sake of Christ. I think about Peter and John are beaten for preaching Jesus in Jerusalem. They come out and they're singing that they were worthy of being punished for the sake of Christ. If that happened to Christians today, the first thing we'd do is we'd be in a court of law. Because you violated my rights. Now let me say, I believe in civil liberties. I believe in religious liberties. But there's going to come a day, I believe... When those things will no longer protect us, and the question is this, how far are we willing to go for Jesus? How far are we willing to go for Him? And here's the thing that they knew. They couldn't endure it. They could endure it because their Savior is alive. They could endure it because they would never be alone in the midst of this kind of suffering. They can rest in him, and they knew that the living Savior was going to walk with them and give them the courage and the grace that they needed at the moment of those times of persecution. And he says there is a mutual suffering that needs to take place within the body of Christ, and we need to understand that we are not in this alone. We are partners together with difficult trials that come our way. But here's the second thing John says. We share a mutual price for service. There's a mutual price to serve the Lord Jesus as well. I think about what John says here. He says he was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was on this volcanic island in the Aegean Sea, which was about 10 miles long and six miles wide. It was a penal colony. It was for prisoners and criminals. And it was because he refused to be quiet about the gospel. Rome kept telling him, you can't preach that anymore. And he refused to be quiet. Rome said, you can't use that language anymore. And he refused to be quiet. Rome said, you can't have that philosophy anymore. And he refused to be quiet. Rome says, you're too archaic. What you're teaching are the things that nobody believes anymore. And he refused to be quiet. And he was put on this island to be separated so he could stop preaching the gospel. There's a price to be paid. And when I think about the early church, there was a price that every one of them paid in that culture. They lost their jobs. They lost their families. They lost their livelihoods. They lost their status. There was a huge price to follow Jesus. We live in a culture today that says, no, 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 no. Following Jesus should be easy. Following Jesus is your best life now. Following Jesus, you get all of these, these benefits and material blessings and conveniences and joys. No, Jesus said, you come follow me and you get a cross. You get a cross. I want to tell you, there are people who follow Christ in this culture today and they're paying the price. I think of a lot of our kids in our elementary schools who are being taught all kinds of false philosophies and they're standing up against it and they're being ridiculed by their peers because of what they're saying. I think of middle school students and high school students are losing out on friendships and popularity because they refuse to stop being quiet about Jesus. I think about adults who are living and working in the workforce and maybe they're being passed up for promotions. Some of them may even lose their jobs because they refuse to be quiet about the work of Christ. And I will tell you this, as long as we stand true to the gospel, as long as we are standing true to the the Word of God, as long as we're not going to be quiet about what the culture tells us to shut up about, there's going to be a price. And we need to ask the question, are we willing to pay the price? Because there's a partnership in our suffering, but there's a price also in our service. And in the midst of all of that, there is the glorified Christ. Who is with us? Let me give you a third thing John says. We not only share this partnership and this price, but we share a proclamation with the saints. We share a proclamation with the saints. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, what does that mean? That doesn't just simply mean that John was being filled with the Spirit as we're called to do all through the book of Acts. This is a supernatural outpouring by the Holy Spirit of God that brought him to a place where he could see things in a supernatural way. This is not the normal feeling of the Holy Spirit. This was something supernatural beyond that. It was on the Lord's Day. Some people say, "Was that? does that mean it was Easter Sunday? Some would argue that it was reflects the day of the Lord. No, most likely it just reflects the day that they worshipped the Lord, which was on a Sunday. The tradition is that the church began to worship on Sunday because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday morning. And that became considered the Lord's day. So he's worshiping the Lord. The Holy Spirit shows up in this supernatural way and he hears a voice behind him like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. To the seven churches in Asia. Why? Why send it to the seven churches in Asia? These seven churches were located in a very strategic circle. If you followed them, they would just simply make a circle. And they were laid up in such a strategic way because they were very significant churches in significant cities. It was also the Romans' postal route of being able to deliver mail and correspondence. And the Romans would simply carry the mail in that circular way. And John has been charged to write this letter and send it to the churches in that area. Why? That was the center of the dissemination of information. It was there that the word got all the way across the world. And with the gospel being proclaimed in those seven churches, it became, began to spread throughout And this book was written to the seven churches, but it was for everyone else. And so this is a proclamation that we join with the early churches. God gave it to them. He's given it to us. We have a mutual understanding of what God is telling us about the end times. And so while there may be suffering and while there may be service and a price with that, there comes this proclamation of scriptural truth that we can be encouraged by. So it was written to the churches, but it was written for us. Now here's the fourth thing, and this is the one we're going to camp on for a while. We share a mutual portrait of the glorified Savior. What an incredible picture. This is where John has the vision Of seeing Jesus and he sees this portrait of Jesus now remember this John had not seen Jesus for 60 years it was 60 years earlier that Jesus ascends into heaven John and the disciples are there Jesus gives him the last instruction from Acts 1 8 that you shall be my witnesses and you shall go from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth And you will be filled with power. That's the last message that Jesus shares. He ascends, and for 60 years, John has not seen Jesus. Now, you can imagine John is constantly thinking about Jesus, and he's probably thinking of him in the human terms that he knew 60 years ago. Then all of a sudden, Jesus appears to him, and he doesn't look anything like the Jesus that he wrote about. I mean, this is a wildly different description of Jesus Christ. And as we look at this description, here's what you and I need to know. It was a terrifying thing for Joy to, for, for John to see it, but it was a joyful thing for him to see it as well. And here's the thing. This is not a description that is meant to say that when you and I stand in the portals of heaven, that's exactly what Jesus is going to look like. Because this is a vision that has symbols to it. And the whole purpose of this vision of him seeing Jesus is to remind him of Jesus' constant work in the church. In fact, when you look at all the symbols that represent Jesus in this vision, all of these are used among the seven churches with the exception of Laodicea. And this is a picture of Jesus' constant work in the church. And here's what we have. That's a mutual thing. This mutual portrait that he sees is for us as well. This mutual portrait that he sees is to encourage you and me today. How does it encourage us? When he breaks down the symbols, there are a number of things that we see how Jesus still works in the church. And let me give those to you. First of all, the glorified Jesus is present among his churches. He is present among his churches. John puts it this way. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. And in verse 20, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What does John see? He sees seven lampstands. The lampstands are the churches. Now, he could have just seen one lampstand to represent the universal church, but he doesn't. He sees seven lampstands, which represent seven individual churches. And in the midst of those seven churches, he sees one like the Son of Man. That's Daniel's representation in chapter 7 of Jesus. And Jesus referred to himself more often as the Son of Man than any other title. Why? Because it is a picture of both humanity and divinity come together. And here's the point. He is walking among the churches. The picture that John wants us to see is this. Among the churches, the Lord Jesus is present. He is there. He is with us. He never leaves us. And of those seven churches, the Lord Jesus is in their midst. He is fellowshipping with them. And with each of these different churches. And I love the fact that he uses seven because he's just not talking about the church universal. He's talking about every single gospel-centered, faithful, Christ-believing church. He is present. And he is walking. Let me tell you, when we gather here today, the Lord Jesus is with us. We haven't gathered here to be reminded of a well-meaning martyr who died for a cause. We are not here to gather to remember some man who had wonderful examples for the way to live our lives. We're not here to remember a historical figure that made an impact in his world. No, we are here today to celebrate and to be with the living Christ. He's here. He's in every single church that worships him. And we never gather in this place apart from him. Now, let me just give you a challenge. Most of the times when we think about coming to church, if you're honest, we're thinking about, okay, we got to go to church. Okay, we got to be with our family. Okay, we got to be with our friends. Okay, we got to be with our connect groups. Okay, we got to be with people that we've invited. And somewhere along the way, we always leave Jesus out. And the number one reason for us gathering together is not just fellowship, but to proclaim the fact that we are with the living Lord. He is here. He is walking among us. And it is his delight to be with us. You see, Jesus loves the church so much that he didn't die for the church and he's not just seated a trance in in this place that's so far removed from the body of Christ. He is with us. And every time we gather together, his heart's desire is that we're here for him. You see, that's the picture that John points, that Jesus is present with us. But this portrait not only talks about the presence of Jesus, this portrait tells us that the glorified Jesus prays for his church. He prays for his church. How does he describe this? He says he's clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, the robes were worn by kings. They were worn by prophets. But in the Septuagint, when it describes this word for robe in the Old Testament, six of the seven times it refers to a high priestly robe. That the Lord Jesus is a high priest among us. As a matter of fact, when you get to the book of Hebrews, the whole book is about his high priestly status before us. And being a high priest, what does he do? He intercedes for us. In Hebrews chapter 7, we find in verse 25 that he is always interceding for us. And here's the encouraging word that John is saying to us. Listen, not only is Jesus walking with you, not only is he present with you, but he's praying for you. We find that he is always at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. And the Lord Jesus loves his bride so much that he is constantly praying for his church. He's praying for you. He knows our weaknesses. He knows our flaws. He knows our struggles. He knows the pressures of our heart. And and Jesus is constantly calling your name to the Father. He knows where you are. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but he has been tempted in every way such as you and I, yet without sin. And there's never a time when the Lord Jesus doesn't know where we are. And there's never a time where the Lord Jesus is not calling your name to the Father. What a beautiful picture of a Savior who is present, of a Savior who is praying. But thirdly, of a savior who wants to purify his bride. The glorified Jesus purifies his churches. Now we see a description of what he looks like. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. What does this mean? All these pictures are pictures of purity. We see in Daniel where he talks about him being the ancient of days. We see that he's talking about his white hair. That means purity. That means wisdom. The Lord Jesus is perfect in all of his character. Talks about his eyes were like a flame, which means that he has penetrating eyes, and he always sees what's happening in his church. There's nothing hidden before him. And he knows the motives and the secrets of our hearts, and he's always looking, and he knows. Last night, we had some guests over, and my wife made these little pumpkin squares. And on the pumpkin squares, to help enjoy the taste, she got some whipped cream that that kind you spray out of the bottle, you know. And she did that. Now, I don't like pumpkin squares. I didn't eat them. The guest ate them. I got up this morning and I opened the refrigerator and I was trying to be so quiet and she was upstairs and I took that little thing out and I went oh. How many of you have ever done that? How many of you have ever done that and then shared that with your guests? While I'm doing it, I heard I hear you. I'm thinking busted. In an even greater way, there's nothing the Lord Jesus doesn't see among us. There's nothing. He sees it all. The resurrected, glorified Christ knows every <laughs> single thing about us, and His eyes penetrate in the church. Bur- bur- burnished bronze, refined in the fire, you know what that talks about? That talks about His purity, and His purity for the church To burn away impurities, it has to be put through heat and precious metals. The dross burns away. And then what happens is there's only the purity of the metal that's left. And here's the purpose that Jesus has. Listen, Jesus loves his church so much that he wants her to be pure. Jesus loves his church so much he wants us to know that he sees where we are and what we're doing. Jesus loves his church so much that he wants to purify her and to burn the dross away that the world only sees the reflection of his face. He loves his church so much that he wants the bride to be distinctively different from the world. Do you hear that? Now, we can contextualize ourselves in the world. That means take the truth and show the relevancy of the truth. But if we overcontextualize ourselves and become like the world, we have lost our distinctiveness as the bride of Christ. And I want to tell you this, a church that is serious, that is serious about holiness and serious about purity and serious about being refined is a church that will catch fire for Jesus. And when a church catches fire for Jesus, the world will come to watch it burn. But a church that is living like the world is distasteful to the world because there's no distinction. Listen, Jesus wants to walk among us. Jesus prays for us, but He seeks to purify us that we would be like Him. But here's another thing. The glorified Jesus speaks powerfully to His churches. He speaks powerfully to the church today. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Now I'm sure the apostle John must have been thinking, wow, this reminds me of living on Patmos, hearing all the storms that have blown through and all the waves that are crashing. But the point is this, the voice of Jesus is authoritative. The voice of Jesus is louder and is to be louder than all the voices of the world. The voice of the Lord Jesus brings life. It is authoritative. Think of this. Jesus is the agent of creation. He spoke the universe into being with a word. Jesus was the one who was able to speak demons to be gone with a word. Jesus spoke against the laws of physics when he said to the storm, peace be still. Jesus spoke to the dead and they raised from the grave. His words are authoritative. And what he wants us to know is this that he speaks loudly to us. But we've got to listen. We're in a world today of all kinds of voices, aren't we? We're in a world today of all kinds of philosophies. We're in a world today of all kinds of ideologies. And in the midst of all of those things, Jesus is speaking. And he's saying to his church, listen to me, because my words are life. My words are authoritative. My word is truth. It's not that they're true. It is truth. His word is the standard of truth and authority. And he's saying to the church, listen to me. I'm right here. I'm speaking to you. I've given you 66 books that I've inspired for you to hear my heart And my love for you. It's incredible what we have. So, part of that portrait is we see that His Word is authoritative and He speaks powerfully. The glorified Jesus positions His churches. You see, it's one thing to be present with us, but He positions His churches to where He wants them to be. He speaks about the seven stars. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And in verse 20, it says, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, some people say that the seven stars are seven angels, which represent seven angelic beings who are over each church. There are some people who take this to say that every church has a guardian angel. Some people take this to say that every church has an angel that brings authority to it. Nowhere in the scripture do we ever see those positions supported. We never see that there are angels guarding specific churches or that angels are even guarding specific people. The word angel simply means messenger. And most likely what he's saying is this. He's saying that the seven stars represent the seven pastors who are the spiritual leaders of those churches. And as the Savior, I control those churches. I am the head. I am the the, the one who is sovereign over the churches. And I am working and directing through the leadership of each church to accomplish my good pleasure. That's the picture. And the picture there is this, that Jesus loves the church so much that he gives the church gifts of godly leadership. And that leadership must be in tune with the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the desire of what Christ wants for that bride. And so we're responsible to him. And so what is he saying here? He's saying that he is the one that utilizes the leadership to move churches where he desires them to be. Now I want to say something. There's a lot of poor leadership today in churches around the United States. There are a lot of leaders who don't know what their vision is and what they want to accomplish. There are a lot of leaders who are more in it for their own rise and their own celebrity status than they are for the glory of Christ. But for those churches who have called godly leadership then the best thing that the body of Christ can do is to pray for their pastors. Listen, you want holy pastors? Pray for them. You want wise pastors? Pray for them. You want aggressive pastors with the gospel? Pray for them. In most churches, there's more complaining about the leadership than there is prayer for the leadership. And sometimes the only prayer that we have for leadership is that God would take them out. (laughs) And that may be part of what's needed. But the greatest thing that he's saying is, I love the church so much, I've given them leaders, and they are accountable to me. And you are partners with them. Pray for them. I think the greatest asset, and I've said this before, of any church or the pastor's personal holiness. And as we live holy lives, that's the greatest asset for the ministries of this body. I bless the Lord for the pastors that God has given us here who are both vocational and non-vocational. Those who serve as elders non-vocationally and those who serve vocationally. And we are constantly seeking the heart of Christ. We constantly look to the pages of Scripture. We're constantly asking the Spirit to show us what are the best decisions. This last year, we spent so much time asking the Lord, dealing with all the different changes with COVID. And as we walk carefully, biblically, prayerfully through that, I think God has blessed us and protected us. But it's not been without your prayers. And what we see in this picture is that we're in this together as we mutually trust that the Lord will lead us to where he wants us to be. Here's another point. The glorified Jesus protects his churches. Now think about this. The church is the bride of Christ. Jesus is going to protect his bride because he loves her. And he says, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. This is a picture of protection. This is not the short sword, the dagger that they used. This is a two-edged sword. This is one of the most lethal weapons in the Roman army's arsenal. Because this double-edged sword was one that would cut both directions. And it was so sharp that it could cut through anything. And cutting both directions, the Lord Jesus is saying this. He's saying, I'm to protect the church, and I'm going to protect the church in two ways. One way, I'm going to protect the church from disunity from within. And there are times that the Lord Jesus brings judgment to the body of Christ, and he cuts away those people who are causing division and disunity and stirring up strife. Any of those things are enemies of the cause of Christ. They're enemies of what he wants to do in the life of a church. Church. And there's a double-edged sword where he has one way of taking care of the enemies from within. But then he also takes care of enemies from without. Those that will come against the body of Christ. Those who will come against the gospel. That doesn't mean we won't suffer. Doesn't mean we wouldn't be persecuted. But it means in the end that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. Because he's protecting his bride. Lastly, the glorified Jesus projects his glory through his churches. He projects his glory through the body of Christ. He puts it this way. He says his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is the countenance of the Lord Jesus. Shining in full strength is brighter than any sun, any star that you can imagine. It is a reflection of his glory that the Father has given to him. And it is a beautiful picture of this brilliant light shining forth into the world. And what is he saying here? He's saying that we, the body of Christ, are to reflect the glory of Christ in the world. We, the body of Christ, are to be such a picture of the Lord Jesus that when the world looks at us, they see the glory of Jesus Christ. We are to live our lives in such a way and to acknowledge His presence and to acknowledge His prayers for us and to acknowledge the power of His Word in us. We are to live in such a way that we know that His Word is authoritative and we have protection. And the shining glory of the Lord Jesus from within us and through this body becomes the glory of this community, in our state, in our world. Jesus loves the church that much that the portrait we see here is a picture of a church that cannot fail. You want to know why the church is thriving in China? Because the glorified Jesus is walking with them. You want to know why the church is thriving underground in North Korea? Because the glorified Jesus is walking with them. You want to know why the church is thriving in the Middle East among Muslims where thousands and thousands of Muslims are coming to faith in Christ today? Because the glorified Jesus is there with them. And when we see the portrait of Jesus in that way, and his love for the church, then what we see is what he wants of us. There is a mutual partnership. There's a mutual price. There is this mutual proclamation. But there is also this mutual um, portrait that we see. But he doesn't end there. He says we will share in a mutual posture when we see the glorified Lord. He says one day when we see him, there will be a mutual posture. He says when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Listen to this. He saw the resurrected Jesus. He saw the glorified Christ. He fell as though dead. That means this. He didn't just voluntarily just bow to his knees and say, Oh, there's Jesus. I better get down. No, this was an involuntary gesture. He fell on his face. Same thing that happened to Ezekiel is the same thing that happened to Daniel. They fall on their face as though dead people. Why? Because they've seen Christ in all his glory. Let me tell you, one of the things that I have heard people flippantly say is when I get to heaven, I'm going to high-five Jesus. Woo, what's up, homeboy? Really? I'm going to ask Jesus all the tough questions that I've always wanted. Really? That's right, Uh uh-uh. 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 From the mouth of babes comes truth. (laughs) No. We won't see Him in the way that John saw Him, but when we see Him, I believe the response is we're going to fall on our face. There's going to be this terrifying joy of recognizing I'm standing before the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And he is no mere man. He is the Almighty. And we need to carry some of that in to our reverence for him here. That he is a brother. He is our Savior. But he is God. And when we worship him, we see him for who he really is. Sixthly, we share in a mutual promise from the glorified Christ. You see, he takes us now to a promise. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death in Hades. Here's an incredible great assurance that Jesus brings to us. John falls on his face as though a dead man He's laid prostrate before the glorified Christ. And what does Jesus do? He puts his hand on him. John, John, get up. Jesus cared so much for not only the church, but he cares for the individuals in the church. And it is so assuring that Jesus cares for you. Listen, no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, The Lord Jesus knows you intimately. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows every single thing that's going to happen in your life. And he is there to hold you. And the promise, he says, is this. He says, there's no fear in life. I'm the living one. Why are you afraid of life? I'm the one that gives life. I'm the one that holds your life. I'm the one that controls your life. I'm the one that is the keeper of your life. Why are you concerned? Why are you fearful of life? Why are we so concerned of a virus? Why are we so fearful over things that the Lord Jesus has absolute authority over? I'm not saying we don't use wisdom when we come to times like this. But wisdom and fear are two different things. We don't need to be afraid. He is the living one. We don't fear life. There's no fear in death. He died and he's alive. Why am I afraid of dying? Maybe it's because of the unknown. Maybe it is that terrifying joy that we talked about but he is the one who's overcome death. I don't need to be afraid. In Christ Jesus, I have no fear of death. The motto of our life should be that of the Apostle Paul. To live is Christ. Why? He's alive. To die is gain. Why? Because he's alive. I don't need to fear death. And thirdly, I don't need to fear eternity because he holds the keys of death and hell. I'm absolutely Secure in Him. Believer, listen. No matter what you go through, this risen Savior is with you. He's before you. He's behind you. He's way ahead of you. And so we fear nothing in Him. That's the promise. And then lastly, we share a mutual plan for the church. There's a mutual plan. Jesus says this. He says, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, those things that are to take place after this. Jesus outlines the book of Revelation into three sections, but he also outlines humanity into three sections. He says, This is humanity. I'm about to tell you the rest of history. Why? Because history is his story. That's all it is. And the rest of history falls into three things. Those things that were, that's chapter 1. Those things that are, that's chapters 2 and 3. And the things that will take place, those are chapters 4 to 22. The things that are, were, are the things of our past. The things that are, are where we are today. But I think we're living in chapters 4 through 22. The things that are going to come to be. And here's the point. We have a Savior who is with us. As terrifying as things might be, there's joy. And John was able to live in this tension of terror and joy and to keep it in the right perspective. And the point for us is this. Listen, no matter what you go through, no matter where you go, these seven things are mutual for the body of Christ. Believer, You are safe. Believer, you are secure. Believer, you are to be faithful in what God has called you to do. And you are to know that he is always with you. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, listen to me carefully. The Lord Jesus is here right now. He's here. And here's what he's saying to you. He's saying, I see you. I know you. I died for you. I paid your sins. I rose from the dead to show you. Not only am I really the son of God, but the father has accepted my sacrifice on your behalf. And I offer you today life. Will you surrender? The Lord Jesus is here. The spirit of God is here. And he's calling you today to surrender. And he is doing it in such a gentle way because he loves you. And I want to encourage you. If you don't know him today, I want to encourage you. Would you (laughs) surrender to him? I mean absolutely surrender your life. Say, Lord Jesus, I give to you my life, my past, my present, my future. Everything that I have, I give to you today. And I surrender to you as Lord and Savior. You the boss of my life. Will you do that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that no matter how terrifying things may be, the joy is found in Christ. Enable us to walk faithfully in these days. Father, for those who need Christ, I pray right now that they would just surrender to him. I pray right now that they would pray this simple prayer to themselves, not out loud, but just pray this to themselves. Dear Jesus, I believe you're God's son. I believe you died for me. I admit that I'm a sinner and I turn from my sin and I ask you to forgive me. And right now I surrender my life to you. Forgive me of my sins. Give me eternal life in Jesus name. Amen. If you were encouraged by this message and you now have a desire to follow Christ or you just want to learn more about our church, I encourage you to go to scottsill.org slash next steps so that we can follow up with you. Also, if you were blessed by this message, I encourage you to share it with your friends and family on social media. God bless.